you're listening to a life-changing podcast that does a deep dive into what's behind the silence, the truth no one wants to talk about, featuring two thought-provoking professional coaches who specialize in linguistic patterns of thought, feelings, and behavior. As NLP practitioners, certified and life-changing, the dynamic duel, Stacey Cutright and Stephanie Demmel. Welcome back, friends, to What's Behind the Silence, the truth no one wants to talk about. And today we're really excited because we have a special guest, um, Rick Smith Jr., that I think you are going to find absolutely as an inspiration, um, or at least he he is to me. And today's topic we're going to be talking about is addiction and also where Rick has found the resiliency um, to live and thrive in a lifestyle of recovery and what addiction provided him, what lifestyle provided him during addiction and in recovery, what lifestyle and gifts has he been given? So welcome, Rick. Thank you for having me, ladies. You're, oh, yeah, to great here. to meet you. You too. So you want to start out with, you know, kind of your story. And if you don't mind, you know, we may jump in every so often to ask you a few questions that would you be uh, open to being vulnerable enough to, to answer? Absolutely. I'll be completely transparent. Awesome. Awesome. Okay. The floor is yours, my friend. Well, cool. So, you know, just to kind of lay a foundation and, um, you know, just to kind of give you an overview, too, of what it was like for me growing up. I have to always preface this first because, um, you know, people will always look at the bad things and sometimes that gets overlooked by, you know, uh, the really good things in life, too. And at, uh, from, from that side of the token, you know, I did. I grew up in a dysfunctional family. Um, I'm a, a, a son, um, you know, of a father who's an alcoholic. Uh, my, my mother who, um, you know, didn't really have a program under her belt yet. Uh, and so the behaviors, uh, the emotions, um, really learned behaviors on what I saw obviously started to mold at a young age of what I thought to be just the way that we live life. And so, um, you know, I was an only child for a long time, nine years, and uh, I've seen my parents grew up with them being, you know, um, not well off. Uh, you know, we, my parents were always working very hard, sometimes working double, triple jobs just to provide. And so, uh, you know, they were always committed from making sure that the family uh, got what they needed. And, you know, I grew up living in an apartment, you know, then we transitioned and things started to get better and, you know, different career paths that my parents chose. And that provided a different type of lifestyle uh, as I continued to get older. Um, But what I saw from both sides of my family, and now looking back at now almost 44, and things that you probably don't recognize when you're a kid is, uh, you know, on both sides of the family. you know, generationally speaking, you see the dynamics of what happens to a family when things get passed down from one generation to the next. And again, I, I keep talking about learned behaviors, but, um, you know, I'm, I'm watching my son now who's two and a half and, 
he's watching everything we're doing, you know, and uh, it's, it's kind of like the parrot right now where we say something and he says it back. So he's absorbing everything. And so, you know, I saw my dad drink and then I saw his dad, my grandpa drink and he died a diabetic, but you know, he never got his drinking under control. And so he died an alcoholic and had some health issues as a repercussion from that alcoholism. Um, and then, you know, uh, extends onto my mom's side of the family, huge hockey family, um, several family members that played in the NHL and, uh, you know, uh, a majority of hockey players when they get together, of course, you know, there's a lot of drinking that goes on. So I saw it at a young age, um, you know, it would be happy hour at the cottage and people would start pouring drinks at four or five, four or five o'clock in the afternoon for their happy hour before dinner. And, you know, all the different beverages of liquor and alcohol were lined up on the table and everybody know, knew whose, uh, you know, bottle was whose, whom's. And, um, you know, that's how I grew up. Uh, and I, I was constantly always around it. And so, you know, for me, I was, trying to of course my dream was to play in the nhl and following in family members footsteps with that hockey career the path that i chose um you know it was never pressured on me but it was something that i was very passionate about and i wanted to follow and and um you know was a triple a hockey player growing up uh i found myself at which point, you know, around 11, 12 years old to where my mom had sent me down on the couch and just said, look, I can't do this with your father anymore uh, unless he gets help. You know, um, you're going to have to choose who you're going to live with. And uh, that was the beginning stages of, of dad getting um, treatment and, and uh, starting on his path of recovery. And so you know, here I am at 11, 12 years old, uh, my brother just being born, then my sister comes in the equation. So, you know, Chris is two, Jill is one. And, you know, here I am at a very young teenager, um, was going to, my dad was in rehab at Brighton Hospital at the time, back in the, uh, the 80s. And so, you know, I was going to Alateen. So there's, there's different there's things that happen with being on the other side of addiction. Of course, you know, we always say we dislike the person who's drinking, but really who we dislike is the addict and what that addict shows through that individual and what they're like when they're drinking and drugging. Um, and so for me, what I had to do as a, as a teenager is to, you know, identify things that I didn't like and what the addiction was doing within the household and certain things that were being, you know, kept from the outside, uh, you know, lies and, and just hiding things. And, you know, um, there's the, there's the side of it to where, you know, as a kid looking back again, you know, you don't want dad to get in trouble. So you weren't necessarily going to say, Hey mom, you know, dad's been drinking again. And obviously when she came through the doors and she could see, you know, uh, who was home, uh, with dad, you know, she could identify what was going on. Um, and to that point, you know, she was also getting help, uh, you know, from what people have to understand with addiction, whether it's, you know, heroin addicts to opioids to, you know, uh, alcohol, you name it, drugs in general, um, even gambling to sex to eating, you know, these are all different forms of addiction. Um, it impacts everybody around those loved ones. 
And, you know, those loved ones can also extend out to being coworkers to teammates and uh, athletics to, you know, obviously your, your parents, to your siblings. Um, and so what that addiction does is it actually makes everybody sick within the household, uh, whether or not someone um, uh, identifies as some things that they need to work on. Uh, is a different story because again, you can 100% think it's, you know, the, the person who's got all the problems that's drinking and drugging when in fact, you've been conditioning yourself for so long of operating a certain way on different behaviors that you don't even realize that they are dysfunctional um, and unhealthy. And so, you know, uh, my mom got help with with her side of the, the, the street and she started to work on herself. And, you know, it took a couple of rehabs actually for my dad um, to get sober and just to kind of be very transparent. You know, I'll never forget the last time he went into treatment, but he literally this was the third time. And, uh, you know, I know probably in the back of, of his mind, he's thinking if I don't if I don't do this for myself, you know, and, and get straight, um, you know, I'm going to lose my, my kids and, and my family. And so, you know, I remember him laying down with me the night before he was leaving to go into rehab. And, you know, he literally said to me, I'd go through a brick wall for you. And, uh, those are, those are moments, uh, you know, my, my dad's always been just a huge heart would do anything for the family. He just loves in a way that uh, is very unconditional. Uh, and that was always there, even in the drinking and using days. And um, I'll never forget that moment. Because again, now to fast forward from being, a, you know, a, a young teenager, here I am at, uh, you know, 15 years old. Um, and I'm, I'm getting the opportunity to actually move away from home, which is kind of crazy to think about now looking back at 15, like, I, I don't know that I could do that with Gabriel uh, if he were to chase the, the hockey dream. And, and, you know, by the way, hockey is much different in Michigan now than it used to be when I was growing up. But, um, you know, I moved away from home when I was 15 and, uh, you know, you start living with host families and here in, you know, now a new country and, different living with different people, having to go to a new high school, uh, you know, meeting new friends and, you know, what goes along with all of that, especially being in high school and whatnot. And, um, you know, it was a very tough time in my life where I wanted to be back home. You know, I, I love my brother and sister, my mom and dad, and it was very tough. Uh, you know, I remember calling home almost every day, you know, and, a lot of that first year was just that I missed home, but, you know, I knew what the end goal was as far as what I was trying to chase. And that was playing in the NHL. So, you know, go to any lengths for, for what I was trying to do career wise, but 15 was a, was a, I would say turnaround for myself as far as kind of diving a little bit deeper into um, the addiction myself. Uh, I always said that, to my mom, you know, I'm not as bad as dad is, and I could control what I was doing. And which, by the way, is, you know, uh, is delusional is really what that is. Um, so at 15, I remember drinking, you know, it might have been like six uh, skunk beers out of my dad's garage before I left that summer to go to Toronto. Um, and then the second time I drank, <clears throat> I drank a full pint of Crown Royal. And, um, 
was at a friend's house to where, you know, I had the courage to call home. Uh, definitely had the liquid courage in me at that point. But, you know, my dad had to literally come and lift me up because I was incoherent and I couldn't even, I wasn't even mobilized to be able to stand up. Um, I was immobilized and he had to carry it in my car like an infant. And, uh, you know, same thing, bringing me into the house. So that kind of started off my drinking career, which led to smoking hash that year and started to dive, you know, a little bit deeper into some other things. Second year, it just got worse. Um, you know, got into smoking weed, which I know for some of the listeners now, like, uh, obviously that's legalized here, but for me, that's still something I need to stay away from because it's a, it's a gateway into other things. Um, my drinking career continued to progress. You know, I was one of, I've got a, a letter actually, I'm, I'm working on a book currently right now. And I was working with my project manager on this last week, but, you know, trying to remember all the stories growing up, uh, was very difficult. And luckily my parents were really good at, you know, keeping articles and letters that were sent to me with hockey and whatnot. And so, you know, being an aspiring hockey player, um, at, at which point, you know, I started getting letters in the mail from coaches that they were going to start recruiting me, you know, at a certain point, and um, they were really interested and, in, you know, looking at me being one of the top recruits uh, in North America. Um, and, you know, even at that time, like it was still, you know, I loved hockey, uh, but the addiction started to take first place in that where hockey was first and hockey started to slide down to, you know, kind of that second place spot as I continued to move around with hockey, which uh, I went to five different high schools. So, you know, I was in Toronto, went to two different high schools there. Um, then I went to Des Moines, Iowa. I was in Omaha, Nebraska, and then finally graduated back home here at Brighton High School um, with my friends that I grew up with. And then I was gone again. Um, you know, I was off into Canada and then I was down to Birmingham, Alabama, Tucson, Arizona, New Orleans, uh, Pensacola, Florida. So was all over the place. Um, and I can tell you at the very end of my hockey career, what happened was when you really look back at the timeline, and it's interesting because I was talking to my dad about this over the weekend, but I was drafted by the Windsor Spitfires in the OHL and I was still contemplating on going to college in 95 is when I was drafted. And, um, I didn't even re report to camp, which you're supposed to do as being drafted to, to a team. Um, Cause I was, I was uh, playing in the USHL at that time uh, intentions of going to, to college. And so all that to be said, um, I came back and I, I reported in 96 to Windsor, you know, had a good uh, rookie camp, so to speak. And, and then the next season was a, was a breakthrough moment for me with my hockey career and uh, things were going exceedingly well. Um, made the US World Junior Team. Uh, unfortunately, two weeks later, I blew up my ACL. So I had a career ending injury at that point. Uh, I never got back the rest of the season. So that really started the, the tailspin for me. But before the ACL had happened, um, I got caught on curfew violations with the team along with um, other players. And here I am, you know, having a great season and broke curfew violation and my, my face, my mug being on the front page of the picture or of the paper 
right next to it in a smaller print was the stats from the night before of the Red Wings playing. And so, you know, everybody and their brother looking at that newspaper, my parents just were just, you know, beside themselves. And obviously, you know, looking back, I can only imagine the feelings that they were having seeing their son being on the front page of the newspaper or breaking curfew violations, which that led to just more drinking after I, uh, after I blew out my ACL, um, was pretty angry at that point in my career. Uh, and so my coping mechanism, you know, people always ask me, why, why did you, you know, how did you get to the point with your addiction? And really the reason why addicts do what they do is they're numbing things that they haven't dealt with. So whether that dates back to childhood or whether that's something that's, you know, current, there's something there that hasn't been identified in, in someone's inventory, so to speak, to where, uh, you know, they've dealt with those things and talked to a professional or have gone to support groups and talked about things. Uh, and they're just completely numbing and masking, you know, those feelings of, of what they're do what they're not dealing with. And so uh, that led to, you know, me being traded. Uh, they actually did it in my favor when my, I blew up my ACL so that I could do my recovery back at home. Um, Windsor was, uh, there was Spitfires were um, gracious enough to trade me to the Plymouth Whalers at the time. And, uh, you know, that allowed me to do what I needed to do back home because I was commuting back and forth. Even when I was at Brighton High School my last year playing for the Spitfires, I would commute from high school across the border to Windsor to play and then come back home at night uh, with practices every day and then games on the weekend for the most part. So, you know, there I was, that was kind of the first like major thing in the media um, about me, you know, and, and drinking and breaking curfew. And then this transition into my last year in the OHL, you know, again, the majority of this was really all drinking uh, with my addiction at that point. But Pete DeBoer, who's now the head coach of uh, the Las Vegas Knights uh, in the NHL, uh, he was my coach in Plymouth. <clears throat> And they were making a run for the cup that year. And I was having actually a really good season, but, um, you know, there were some things that I just wasn't being a good role model to for the up and coming, you know, hockey players. Uh, and, you know, I was doing things off ice that wasn't really showing that I was fully committed to the team and doing what I needed to do to be a part of that championship team, making a run for the cup. And so he brought me in about halfway through the season and said, Hey, look, you know, this is obviously your last year in the OHL. We're making a run for the cup. It's obvious you want to have fun. So we're going to trade you to somewhere that you can have fun for the last half of your season. And, you know, in the moment, of course, again, pretty angry, but uh, the person who I needed to look at the most was in the mirror. Um, and the coach at that time, again, I'll never forget these comments, but he just said, look, you know, my last name, of course, being Smith, my nickname when I played was Smitty. And he said, Smitty, you know, you're going to be a professional next year. You're going to sign a professional contract and you need to start acting like a professional. And so it was just another moment like, you know, when the question comes up, how was that? Why didn't you write the ship at that point? And again, it was just I didn't want to hear it. Uh, you know, I love drink and um you know, that's where I was at the time. And so, you know, here I'm headed into my summer of my 21st birthday and my parents had gone up north to the cottage 
uh, we, I, I don't know. I mean, the, the numbers were, were ridiculous. The, the, the cars were parked in Deer Creek all the way back out to old US 23. And there was easily, you know, a hundred people in that house, if not more. And uh, that was my last hurrah at that point. You know, I turned 21 that day and, um, you know, things got out of hand that night. I remember just being in a blackout and my, my uncle coming to the house the next morning, knowing that my parents were out of town, probably more or less to make sure that I was okay. But, uh, you know, he wanted to take me to the hospital and, and more or less get my stomach pumped. Um, but I told him, you know, I, I'd be okay. And which thank God I was. Um, and so it was probably about two to three weeks after that, I, you know, my parents came home, I knew I was going to have to face the music with them. And, uh, I basically checked myself into rehab. Um, I went to a place out in Minnesota that's actually, uh, recognized globally, but it's called Hazelden. And, um, you know, here I am 21 years old going into rehab. I knew I was going into my first year. I'd signed a contract playing my first year of pro hockey and uh, I, need to, I needed to take a timeout um, and, and get my act together. And so I went in for 30 days into treatment right before I went into training camp. And so it couldn't come at a more opportune time to, to try and get help and, and do what I needed to do. And it worked for a while, you know, uh, unfortunately, I mean, I, I still am in the back of my mind, like I, I was going to work my ranks up through uh, my way up through the ranks with, with hockey to the NHL. And um, there was, I mean, I, I, I wanted it. So I knew that the way I was going wasn't going to allow me the opportunity to get to where I wanted to go. Um, it was kind of a beautiful thing that really showed me that uh, with my recovery, you know, my performance, um, was exceptional. I came in a rookie, you know, a rookie that season. And I actually scored my first professional hat trick that year. You know, things were going so well. Um, and it wasn't too long though. Again, hockey not being a great place and environment, uh, you know, when you're still going into wet places, being bars with the guys afterwards, um, you know, that that's where I headed after games and we'd get something to eat, guys would be drinking and you know, it wasn't too long thereafter. I mean, I was sober for about six months and then, you know, the wheels fell off the bus and uh, I started drinking again. I was actually dating a girl and I saw this thing called tequila, which is a tequila shot and beer all in one. And I thought to myself, man, I've, I've never tried that before. I'm missing out. And so, you know, one goes down, two goes down, three goes down. And, um, you know, uh, jokingly, uh, I can look back now, but it was like Frank the Tank. As soon as it hits my lips, it's game on. Um, that led to trying some new drugs that season. And uh, I knew when I came back home after the season was over, you know, my dad would know because uh, he'd see it on me. I mean, being someone who's been an addict, uh, alcoholic, you kind of know what you're what you're looking at when you're looking at somebody. And my face being beat red, more puffy, you know, all these little things you're waking up later, you know, all the behaviors that are showing like uh, this guy doesn't have his act together. And so I wanted to get as far as away from home as possible um, to do what I wanted to do with, with my, with my drugging and drinking. And so I went to Tucson, Arizona, which then, you know, led to my first uh, time of, of snoring cocaine. Um, 
so the addiction started to progress even further into the drug side, which then led me being, uh, I went to New Orleans to play that season. Um, and anybody who's been to New Orleans knows what, uh, what that type of environment looks like. Uh, I knew what I was doing when I was going down there. Um, and this was kind of the nail in the coffin for me with my hockey career, you know, at that time. But, you know, again, first half of the season, you would always see it in my stats, like things were going super well, was on the power play, you know, playing on the first or second line. And, uh, you know, the body just couldn't keep up with what I was doing. We'd be out partying till 2 a.m., you know, show up for practice the next morning or even playing a game. Uh, but that's where the cocaine started to really pick up speed, you know, got into ecstasy and um, started going down that rabbit hole a lot further. And so to fast forward that season, you know, uh, the coach, another former NHL coach, Ted Sater, and then uh, the GM, Dan Belial, they bring me into the to the coach's office, uh, you know, about two weeks before playoffs were supposed to start. And um, they end up releasing me two weeks before playoffs, again, because of my off-ice habits. And I remember walking out to my car and the coach was walking out uh, with me, Teddy, and he said, look, Smitty, like there's some guys that can do this off the ice and some guys that can't, and you're not one of them. And uh, again, it was just another moment in my career where I didn't want to hear it. You know, um, I was I was angry, you know, and it was just like, get me in my car. I'm going to get out of here. And so, you know, I didn't want to go home. Uh, I waited for the first round of playoffs to see what would happen. One of my buddies lived uh, was playing for a team in Pensacola, Florida, and um I ended up uh, going down there after I got released. And when I tell you to the last cent of what I had, you know, we were down there for about three months. And, um, you know, again, just everything escalated uh, to the point where I was selling CDs, uh, my disc player to close to whatever I could just so that I could get what I wanted to with my drinking and my drugs. Um, was sleeping on a couch down there, uh, was just basically at the, at the bottom, um, of where I was with my hockey career and my drinking and drugging at that time. And so, you know, here I come tail between my legs, going back home. Uh, obviously as soon as I showed up on the doorstep, which by the way, my dad, um, you know, was calling the morgues, the police stations, you know, my parents had no clue where I was postseason, you know, and uh, the only thing I did to let my mom know I was still alive is I sent her a, uh, a Mother's Day card um, so that she knew uh, that I was still alive. And, uh, you know, I wanted to wish her a, a, a happy Mother's Day. And, you know, after that time had passed and I showed up on the front doorstep when I came back home, you know, I'll never forget in the office, my mom was on the phone, my sister was there, my brother was at the top of the stairs and my dad was coming from the couch. Um, but it was like a ghost had shown up at the front door because they couldn't believe I was standing there. And uh, even through all of that time, you know, um, there was never a point where I said, I got to slow down uh, or I'm going to stop this. And, uh, you know, things just escalated after that season. You know, I ended up getting my own home, which I don't know how that even happened. But, I, you know, my dad had helped me out on a land contract because I was trying to get my credit established. And he gave me a, a money for a down payment, which, you know, he said, here's the deal. 
we're going to get your credit in order. And then uh, in 12 months time, you know, you're going to refinance this and pay me back in which I did. I couldn't believe it, but I had all this wad of cash sitting in an envelope. And I thought to myself, I could do a lot of damage with this. And, um, you know, I was, I was proud of myself at that time, especially where I was with my addiction that I gave all that money back to my dad. Um, but, you know, through that process, uh, again, probably not dealing with the emotions and all the things that happened with my hockey career. Uh, it just went another level, you know, um, the cocaine just became more and more and more same thing with the ecstasy going out and partying was in the mortgage business. And so was making, you know, some really good money ended up getting engaged, um, to a girl who eventually said, I can't do this anymore. Uh, and, um, you know, she gave the ring back and, that's when it kind of hit me. Uh, that was my bottom. Um, I remember being in, in my house and I dropped to my knees and was asking help from God. And, uh, you know, the first person I called was my mom. And, you know, looking back, like, must have been such a tough moment for her because she knew that if she was going to be, you know, uh, the person of the phone call and here, let me take you out to you or go get you some clothes or, you know, just some instant gratification things that wouldn't lead to really to the root cause of what was going on to get some help. You know, uh, that was going to be a really tough decision for her on what she was going to do in that moment. But I'm so proud of her that she did because she literally said she came in the house, she saw me and I told her, you know, what had happened. And uh, she just said to me, look, you know, you've got two options here. You can continue to do what you're doing or, you know, we've, we've paid, I think at that time when I went into rehab back when I was 21, it was over 20 grand, maybe even 25,000 to go into rehab at that time. You know, she said, we paid for your, your education with your recovery. Um, you know who to call. And uh, she's like, I love you, but you know, you, you, you've got a choice to make here. And she walked out the door and drove away. And, um, thank God, you know, I wanted to live because there was a point in my addiction. Uh, I was contemplating suicide. I had already preconceived ideas on how I was going to do that. And, um, you know, I didn't want to live. I thought for me, I was going to die by the time I was 30 years old. That was the plan anyways. Um, party hard, live like a rock star. And, you know, that's what I was doing. But in this moment in my life, I, I decided uh, that I wanted to live. I didn't want to die. And so I picked up a phone, somebody that I knew um, that had some long-term sobriety. And, uh, you know, we, we went to dinner that night um, and then went to a support group meeting. And so that was the beginning stages of this last time of me getting sober. And, you know, through that process, uh, my ex-fiance at the time, you know, uh, there were still things that she had in the house. And, um, for me, I just really needed to concentrate on my sobriety. Cause I knew if I didn't like the, the next step for me was definitely going to be death. Um, and so we, we parted ways, uh, and I, I did what I needed to do. Um, and it was actually getting comfortable being by myself in a house. Uh, I remember, you know, dinners of sitting at the dinner table by myself, watching the sunset go down and, um, you know, I wasn't uh, drinking and drugging anymore. And it took a while for me just to get comfortable uh, being in an environment by myself. So, you know, all that led to uh, me immersing myself into health and wellness. Uh, 
you know, it wasn't easy at the beginning, that's for sure. Um, but as time went by, another 24 hours went by of me not drinking and drugging, you know, there was friends that I had to remove out of my life. Um, you know, I went to any lengths this time on the flip side of the coin of, uh, you know, maintaining my sobriety. So, you know, for me, uh, support group meetings to, um, working out, uh, to treating my body better with how I ate, to taking vitamins, to getting a routine, to, you know, all these other things that lead to a healthy lifestyle, the, the things to, uh, I, I read now today, which for me in the morning, um, you know, I get my coffee and then I read some scripture in the morning and then I read two devotional books um, on recovery. And uh, that's how my day gets started. And, you know, look, like I'm not a perfect person. Um, I'm not chasing perfectionism, but at the end of the day, if I'm getting 1% better every day, you know, add that up over 365 days, I'm doing pretty good. Um, so, you know, in my recovery now today, what's, what's amazing and what's kind of funny when you see things come full circle is you look back, I was the guy that, you know, was drinking, drugging, where's the party at, where we're going to get the drugs from. Today, I'm the guy that you come to for behavior change. I'm a behavior change coach, also certified in, in nutrition and fitness and whatnot. So uh, it's just the contrast of these two people, which again, you know, you've got the drinking, drugging Rick, and then you got the sober Rick and it's uh, Jekyll and Hyde. It's two different people. Um, and so I'm, I'm very blessed on where I am today. I've definitely earned my spot at the, at, at, with my sobriety. Um, you know, it's been, it's been over 19 years since I've had a drink or drug. Um, and you know, the burning flame for me now today is not only for myself, but it's the people that I work with that are out there trying to get sober. You know, I've, you know, I worked with, uh, just talking to, you know, someone who's a former heroin addict this morning, you know, uh, guys doing cocaine to, you know, alcoholics, you name it, but guys that I work with today that we have real conversations, it's not peripheral, you know, how, what's the weather like, you know, things like that. It's, uh, the people I have in my life today, um, it's, it's a true brotherhood and a fellowship that, you can't get sitting at a bar stool in a bar. Um, and that's one of the big flames for me is to be able to help and pass this on to the next person. Like I need to do what I need to do within my four walls at home to maintain my sobriety, which then allows me the efforts to be available for those on the outside that are looking to stay sober. And then last but not least, you know, uh, my wife's never seen me drink or drug. Um, I got married, you know, at our wedding. Uh, you know, there was grape juice in my, in my glass when we toasted. Um, so she's never got to see the, the using Rick. Uh, you know, it's not to say she doesn't see my character defects from time to time. That's for sure. Uh, we're all human. You know, there's good days and bad days and, uh, you know, reflection on certain days when things aren't so good. But, um, you know, for me, my son, that's, that's my biggest thing is, he sees me out in my gym in my garage and he comes out here and he works out with me. You know, uh, if it was the flip side to where, you know, I'm inside, you know, having a drink and hiding things that I'm smoking or whatever it is, you know, he's going to catch me. He's going to see certain things and that's going to transition into learned behaviors. And so I just am always grateful and thankful that the life I'm living today, 
is going to afford him an opportunity to not have those things in his life. And it's not to say, you know, I had my project manager on the book that I'm writing right now ask me, you know, what are you going to do when your son one day, you know, starts asking questions or, you know, he starts dabbling if, if he chooses that. And I'm going to, you know, my book's going to be out there. The, um, the conversations are going to be had. You know, I know he's going to be going to friends' homes and they're going to see parents drinking and doing certain things when he gets a little bit older. And, uh, you know, he's probably going to come back home and say, Dad, how come you don't drink? And that's going to provide me an opportunity to share with him, you know, my story. Uh, and again, you know, if I'm still out there drinking and drugging, it doesn't provide me the opportunity to be available to my son. And not to mention, if I was living the old Rick lifestyle, I guarantee you, uh, my wife not knowing where I am at night or not coming home that night or, you know, going to strip clubs, whatever that looked like back in my old life, um, she's not going to have it. And uh, she's going to do everything possible to protect her son. And uh, we're probably not living underneath the same roof. So, is there days where I feel like drinking or drugging at this point in my sobriety? I don't, um, I don't have the obsession to drink or drug anymore. Uh, what I have the obsession with is, is in my mind. It's my thinking you know, everything else is a byproduct of what I did from, you know, things that happened in my life and what my thinking is doing. And so, uh, you know, that's where for me today, um, I just continue to try and get better every day. And it allows me the opportunities, you know, just in life in general. And, and again, I've been through bankruptcy. I've been through foreclosure. I've had deaths in, in the family, you know, all of these things, birthdays, Christmases, Halloweens, you name it, were all just excuses to drink in the past. Uh, today, I can, I can deal with these emotions in a healthy way. Um, and I also can be available and, and be in the moment uh, and not be numb uh, with tough things that occur, you know, or even the good moments and, and being available because, you know, I am coherent. So, um, you know, that's, that's kind of where I'm at with my story uh, to kind of close that out. Um, I know you guys might have some questions for me. Thank you, Rick. That story was incredible and I applaud you and kudos to you for 19 years. Thank you, Stephanie. I love that. And I love that you're sharing your story because I think that's the most important, you, you know, you had kind of touched on that a little bit. It was about, you know, being able to share what you've learned so that, you know, you can help others down the stretch. And I love that you're a behavior coach. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I, I think, uh, you know, obviously with, uh, with the story, I mean, for myself, there's going to be a lot more deep dive into to certain stories, uh, because again, within my book, when that comes out, which should be by the end of June here is the target um, date on that. But, um, you know, I, I think what people have maybe a preconceived idea of what an alcoholic or a, a drug addict look like is, you know, like um, someone maybe in downtown Detroit on the side of the curb and, you know, they're underneath a, a viaduct with a brown paper bag and they look disheveled and they don't smell so clean and you know their 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 clothes are all battered up and uh it could be your next door neighbor which is putting on a really good facade and and my target audience with this you know is one of again one of the the questions from my project manager on this book is who's your target audience and i mean i was 15 years old when this really started to go sideways so 
all these pressures that are going on in life, and especially today, it just seems like, uh, you know, it just continues to pile on for these young adults, um, kids. And you're, you're hearing the stories, you know, my dad's an addiction therapist and, um, you know, uh, it's always about anonymity, but he will for sure share on certain stories on what's going out there. And it will literally blow your mind on, on the age on what some of these kids are doing. Um, and so my hope is, you know, my message will get spread, you know, around the globe with this book. Uh, that's, that's the driving force on this to hopefully impact, you know, kids, young adults, professionals, athletes, uh, all the, all the above. You know, I do have a question for you, Rick. Um, you know, we've seen an increase in um, addiction, you know, and, and COVID has not helped. Um, however, also in overdose death. And um, on people, you know, I know three people myself in this last year that had accidental overdoses. And to be honest, the three people were like, oh, no way. Mm -hmm. And one of them, it took a toll very rapidly, you know, like one use and the next two use after the next two uses death. So it wasn't like a long stint in years. And what do you, from your perspective, what do you think, you know, you had said about numbing, you know, they want to numb and they don't want to face their, their, their issues or struggles, but why more now do you think that it's it's increasing? And what do you think can be done about it? Yeah, those are, I mean, such good questions. And, and some of it, it's, it's getting into the brains of those people, right? Like, um, it's definitely a coping mechanism. Uh, whether there's shame, guilt, remorse, and I've seen it too. I've had close friends, you know, same deal, overdoses. I've literally seen people get sober and then go back out after 10 years. And then, you know, the story of them killing themselves. Um, there's a lot of guilt, remorse, shame that goes along with addiction that can get really heavy. Um, you know, I talk about environmental things within my coaching program too, uh, relational, social, um, environmental, uh, you get into where you're just, you don't think that you're as good as the next person or how is this person able to cope with that? And I'm not, and you start judging yourself and comparing yourself to others. Uh, there's just so many things that go into this. And I think, each, each story is individual in its own ways. When you do hear, or you have a close family member that's going through a struggle, like I just had a, a mom reach out to me not too long ago who their niece is prostituting herself out for uh, her, her drug of choice. And she's nowhere to be found. They know that she's still alive, but they can't find her. Um, I can just tell you from being a, a former you know, addict, alcoholic, that your passion and love is all about that next fix. You don't care what type of, uh, you don't care about the person um, next to you, the loved one that you're destroying that relationship with, or you're blazing that trail on, uh, because that passion and love to get that next high, it just fars out a far far outweighs everything else that's going on in the world. And again, I you know why are people doing this now more than ever? 
I mean, I hate to, you know, I, I'm <laughs> from my coaching perspective, I've never given myself excuses, especially when I work out, you know, I come out in my garage five days a week and people say, how do you have the accountability on yourself to do that and the way that you work out? And um, I think once you get past a certain hurdles in your life, you start to have these breakthrough moments, but until that happens, um, you, you're kind of, you're sitting there wondering, you know, am I able to do this? Am I able to stay sober? What happens if, you know, this person contacts me? And um, again, going back to the excuses, I mean, we're seeing it with our son right now. So COVID was a big, was a big deal. You know, you get the shutdowns and not being able to go in social environments. Uh, well, I'm trying to take him in social environments right now. And he's, he's saying, dad, I'm scared like that's a two and a half year old, you know, he's going into a swimming pool saying, I'm scared, dad, I'm scared. I took him into a CrossFit facility into a kid's program. And we keep telling them, be brave, Gabriel, be brave. Um, you know, any type of these social environments right now, it's, it's all brand new. It still feels uncomfortable and it doesn't matter the age, everybody's been impacted by it. So if someone's not dealing with that in an appropriate manner, what should they do? Um, I mean, should's a strong word, but I would encourage somebody to get help. I mean, just as much as I come out here five days a week to work out, you know, it, it impacts me physically, but it impacts me spiritually, emotionally, mentally. Uh, but I still engage on a very deep level mentally with the people that I talk with on a weekly basis. So if that's to get some coaching, if that's to see a specific therapist for the specific thing that you're dealing with, and then also diving into a certain support group that can, you know, uh, allow you new friendships. I mean, the friendships I have today from the support groups that I've been involved with, like we do stuff on the outside, you know, we live life together, we go golfing or, you know, we're going down to Greek town to, to go to Pegasus and, and get some Greek food, you know, whatever it looks like. But that support group has been so instrumental too in regards to uh, my recovery. Uh, so hopefully that's that's helped out a little bit there to answer some of your your questions there. Absolutely. I have another one. Yeah. And this is going to kind of target, you know, me um, on it. You know, I have three, three alcoholics in my family and uh, itself. And, you know, I will, like I say to my son, my my proudest moment was when he came to me at 23 years old calling mm. me we're right before 23 and crying and saying mom I think I need rehab that was my proudest I got to be honest my proudest moment where some people might have you know as parents been embarrassed or oh my gosh hide it you know I rejoice you know I, I'm extremely proud of my son for that however one thing that hit me really hard you know because all of them are living sober currently today, as I know it. Um, you know, you had said somebody, you know, 10 years sobriety, because all of mine are not 10 years sobriety. You know, they, they went back out. So those loved ones or parents or, you know, what, what, uh, you know, they talk about in, in recovery from addiction, you know, that pink cloud, mm -hmm. you know, do you also feel that sometimes the loved ones get in that pink cloud? Like they've had so much sobriety and like, it's never going to happen again or it can't happen again. 
Yeah, so I think so from from the stories that I've witnessed myself over 19 years and the people that do go back out, what normally happens is you can identify quickly uh, with behavior starting to change. So, you know, if someone's not doing the work that they need to do, um, just working some basics within their program, which, you know, normally there's a, a sponsorship relationship or some, some sort of uh, therapist or mentor relationship in the professional world um, to where, you know, you're doing some check-ins or, uh, you know, you're calling just to say, hey, I'm dealing with this and, you know, I'm not feeling right about it, um, you know, to not going to support group meetings or not going to see your therapist. Uh, you're not doing all the things that got you sober and that got you to that 10 years. And then all of a sudden you say one day, I'm good, you know, and I can, I don't have to go to meetings anymore. I don't have to see a therapist anymore. I don't have to do these readings anymore. Um, basically what you're saying is, uh, you know, I don't need to take care of myself anymore. And, and just like you said, um, you know, that person who, you know, overdosed and went back out, our addiction just gets stronger. It's just sitting there waiting for us to come back. And when it does, it pounces. And I, that's, that's my healthy fear today for me is, you know, uh, I did try a lot of drugs. I didn't get into the heroin. You know, I'm a curious George. Um, so, you know, I don't want to go down that path because I've worked with heroin addicts. Uh, you know, it's, that's a slippery slope. Um, I've worked too hard to where I'm at, but at the same time, like, that's why I always emphasize, I still have to do the work just because I've got 19 years. Doesn't mean I couldn't wake up tomorrow and, and blow it all. Is that, you know, a probability? I mean, on a very low, 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 low side of it, but, um, you know, as far as the loved ones, like keeping that side and keeping yourself safe and clean, it's just knowing that you've done everything possible from your side. And just like my mom, you know, she's got to keep her side of the street clean and she's got to be in an acceptance perspective, um, to where if something were to happen, you know, that's not her fault. It's, it's the addict's choice. So she's already given us the education. My brother went into rehab. He was an extended stay. Uh, we joke about it today, but you know, he's got over 10 years. My dad's got over 26 years. And so, you know, my dad was the generational break for us, but again, we still have to all do our work or, uh, it, our addictions just going to grab us, take a hold of us and take us back out and we might not make it back. And so that's reality. And I think once people surrender to whatever they're dealing with, and that that's a key word because I was fighting it for a while. Uh, it wasn't until I 100% absolutely surrendered to my addiction that that was the turning point for me. Uh, and, and the flip side to that is of having the healthy fear. If I choose to go back out, guess what? I've seen enough people die from this and I know what happens and that's a choice. So if I choose to do that, that's my choice. But you know, I'm choosing that I wanna live and I wanna be here today. Now for the person who goes back out, you know, maybe they weren't completely honest with sharing what they needed to share. Maybe they didn't, uh, you know, get some of those skeletons out of the closet that were starting to eat at them. So it's just really imperative that uh, both sides of the coin for the addict, you know, that they are brutally honest with things that have gone on in their life, dating back to their childhood to completely get all the cobwebs out. Um, 
and then on on the other side of that coin is uh, the codependency side to make sure that we're not you know doing those behaviors anymore to the loved ones and just knowing like you've done everything possible and all you can do is support you know your loved ones on their journey currently. Thank you so much. You know, uh, ironically, you know, you had made mention, you know, daily inventory, etc. And it wasn't that long ago that my son had said, you know, to me, um, you know, kind of like, I've got this, you know, I've had this amount of sobriety, I'm not, I'm not really afraid of, of the alcohol anymore. And, you know, I, that we, my husband and I were laying in bed that night, and, you know, I was sharing this with my husband, and he says, well, <laughs> that's the moment that his ass should be at a meeting, mm -hmm. because the minute you're not afraid of it, is the minute that you need to be in recovery again. Um, and so, you know, I, I commend you, you know, I respect the hell out of you and, you know, I'm so proud of you, um, you know, and making the changes and, you know, stopping the, the habitual and the historical generational um, family dynamic system of dysfunction. Um, it's not easy to, to be that, you know, those individuals to stand up and say, hey, you know, like I say often, those who get healthy together will stay together. And those that won't, they don't. Absolutely. And, and what I found is the reason that they don't is because the individuals that are getting healthy and putting in the hard work, which it is, it's very painful, it's emotional, it it's, takes commitment, is they're not going to co-sign on the bullshit of the people that aren't. Amen to that. And so, you know, that is what, what I see. You know, I don't care if it's a family. I don't care if it's a, a friendship, uh, a, a work relationship, you know, uh, I say, you know, relationships all together, if we're not striving, and another one I love to say is the 1% better. Mm -hmm. I tell my clients all that time, you know, each day, just 1%, you yes. know, we're not asking you 50% tomorrow is, you know, if the people you're hanging around, aren't looking to grow, that might be an indicator of, hmm, you know, is, is this a place for me? Yeah. Do you have any other final thoughts, Steph, for, for Rick? I just wanted to ask one question, you know, Rick, you had mentioned, you know, while you were growing up, there was the lies, the hiding, you know, keeping it inside. Um, you don't want to get your dad in trouble. Um, what would you say to young, young people or even family members that are in these situations where someone in the family is an alcoholic or drug dependent? What would you say to them in order to start the road for them to find some type of uh, release or resolve? So you're saying from the loved one to kind of step up to the plate to, to acknowledge that there's an issue going on? Yeah, I guess so. And what would you what would you say to them if they you know want to do something about it or get some type of support? What would you say to them? Yeah, so two parts to, to answer this. I, I would say for for the loved one that's impacted on the other side who's not the addict, uh, here, here's one great book, by the way. Um, it's Codependency No More. Uh, so 
for all the listeners, I would highly, you know, encourage you if you're dealing with a loved one that is, uh, you know, they're dealing with an addiction, that is a great read. Um, and what, what you're going to find is, again, you're probably going to acknowledge some things that uh, aren't helping the situation, uh, but it will also bring you some freedom um, when you start stepping up to the plate and bringing it to light and to the surface of what the uh, addict is doing. And through that, you know, then you get away from, here's, here's this, it's a very sick thing that goes on mentally. So, you know, um, the addict can say one thing and, and man, manipulate you to the point in which now you think that you're the crazy person. Uh, and you're dealing with some things mentally where you start questioning yourself, like, uh, okay, am I really doing that? Like something's not adding up here. Something's not right. Um, as a, you know, an, an addict, you're, you're really good at manipulation. So, uh, I'll just give you an example. Again, I said to my mom, you know, when I was drinking, I'm like, look, mom, I'm not drinking the liquor. I can control this better than dad. I don't have a problem. And she was like, okay. And then, you know, my dad being sober at that time, um, he, he would see right through the, 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 the BS. And uh, the, the addict is very good at denial, but once we get past that point of being in denial and the person's ready to get help, don't, don't be afraid. Cause I think that's what people, it just freezes people as fear. Um, and that can be devastating just because that's not going to allow you to get to where you want to go. So once we get through the fear and we realize, uh, you know, our breakthrough moment's going to happen when we ask for help. That was the other biggest thing for me was asking for help. Cause again, you know, strong mind, strong will, you know, uh, I can do it on my own, all these type of things. Right. Um, I need to be willing to ask for help. Uh, and so, you know, whether that's knowing, like, I need to go take a time out and, uh, I need to, to get some, you know, uh, 30 day treatment or 90 days, whatever that looks like. Um, if it's, you know, knowing of someone that's in the recovery world and, you know, taking them out to lunch or breakfast or having a cup of coffee, whatever that looks like, you know, uh, when you're ready and willing, uh, you know, the teacher will appear, right. That old saying. Um, so, you know, I just think, again, the two major things for the person who's the addict is getting past the state of denial, that you don't have a problem, that you do have a problem. And how do we know if we have a problem? It's the unmanageability part. You know, we start uh, drinking at night, which, you know, a uh, social drinker, you know, that's my wife. She can uh, order a glass of wine and maybe drink half of it and leave the rest without even thinking about it. An addict like myself is sitting there thinking, I just paid $14 for this glass of wine. We better get that down. And then how, how many more are we going to have? Um, so once you identify that, you know, I'm not drinking normally, maybe I'm isolating and drinking. Maybe I'm, uh, you know, going on binges now over the weekend. And then I wake up on a Monday and I feel like garbage. And I just spent two grand over the weekend because of my drinking and drug use. Uh, it could be that work got in the way, you know, work related to where you got fired on the job. Uh, that was kind of like me with my hockey career was getting traded away, was getting released, you know, because of my drinking problem, but was still in denial about it. Um, 
and there's many different ways that that can look as far as being in that state of denial. So once we get past that, then the next part is, uh, you know, surrendering and asking for help. And again, there's so many different places out there to get help with today. It's just a matter of picking up that phone um, and using what's accessible to you. You know, again, my dad being a, an addiction therapist and how, um, you know, uh, I can tell you there's so many different walks of life that, that come to him, uh, but it requires, you know, somebody picking up the phone or, you know, calling a treatment facility and saying, I think I'm a, an alcoholic or a drug addict, but I'm not sure. And they will go through a series of questions and you'll be able to identify, you know, for yourself that, uh, look, I've got a problem, but I can tell you in the heart of hearts, most could wake up and go, yeah, this isn't normal. Uh, I don't see my next door neighbor doing this or, you know, my wife's not doing this and, and, um, you know, I need some help. That's so and one thing that I laugh about is when you said that your wife, you know, can leave, um, you know, like a half a glass of wine or when she's done, you know, there's, there's several times that, you know, I've been out with my husband and I'll take a, take a sip of it. And cause mine, mine is normally vodka and lemonade that I like. And I'll take a sip and it just doesn't, it doesn't, you know, but my palate, it doesn't just taste good. And I'll, I'll leave it. And he's like, what? I could never have done that. Like, you know, he said, it's tempting to not pick it up and like, be like, you know, how can you do that? How can you just stop? And uh, so, you know, I kind of, I kind of chuckle about that because we have this discussion, you know, um, I don't drink often uh, either. And it's just a choice of mine because it doesn't, it doesn't make me feel good. So, you know, from, for myself, Rick, again, I want to thank you so much for being transparent and vulnerable and uh, coming to us and donating your time today and gifting that uh, to us. And uh, are you willing to share the, the name of your book? Or are you going to keep that kind of top secret? No, it's not top secret. As a matter of fact, we're actually working on what that title is going to be right now. So uh, I've got different writers with helping to organize the outline and the, the chapters right now. And then um, uh, an artist with the book cover and then what the title is going to be in the subtitle. So it is still in the works. So stay tuned for that. Okay. Well, if you would do us a favor, you know, um, if you could reach out to me, once you identify, you know, we'd love to, to let our listeners know what that, that title of the book is and, you know, where they can find it. And, I would, uh, sure. You know, because I'm going to tell you, you know, your story uh, uh, is is one that there's more levels to it. Um, you know, there's not enough time in the day yeah, for, sure. for, for you to donate to us. But, you know, thank you so much. Uh, and, you know, I'm so proud of you, Ricky. Um, you know, it, it, it's uh, not easy. And, you know, your family has put in the work and the uh the amazing relationships that you have. I mean, I will tell you as an outsider, you know, looking uh, in, you know, you guys definitely have a beautiful family dynamic now. So, you know, when you do Thank get you. healthy together, you know, it's not just stay together. It's you flourish. Absolutely. Yes. 
Well, thank you so much for having me on here today, Stacy and Stephanie. It's uh, it's been a pleasure, and again, uh, anything that I can do to help out in the future, I am always here to uh, to be a service. Well, we really appreciate that. Yeah, and the pleasure is all of ours. So, thank you for sharing your story with everyone. Absolutely, thank you very much. And remember, folks, go out and smile and be kind, not just to others, however, to yourself too. And do better, be better, and treat people better. Catch y'all later.